Well, about a month ago, our elders decided that it was time to take a breather from Romans. And for the past nine months, we've worked our way through the first seven chapters of that glorious book. We've followed the Apostle Paul to the soaring heights of what is the Mount Everest of biblical revelation. And from those majestic peaks, we have surveyed the vast landscape of redemption from the fall of man in the first Adam to the salvation and redemption of man in the second. And the view has been, for me at least, breathtaking. But there is a danger in remaining too long at altitude. If we're not acclimatized to the rarefied heights of such biblical peaks, we may become dizzy and lightheaded. And it's good, therefore, to come down from the summit in order to catch our breath before we venture back up to the mountaintop in a couple of months to tackle Romans 8 and Romans 9, two of the highest peaks in this range called Romans. So this summer, we're going to try and find our rest in the Psalms. Now that's not to say that we're not going to find in these pages some deep theological truths, but rather that the theology of the Psalms is presented in a different way than it's presented to us in Romans. It's presented through the grid of gritty human experience with all of its ups and downs and highs and lows and joys and sorrows. The Psalms are an unfiltered, personal record of what happens when frail, fallible humanity intersects with a majestic and sovereign, holy and righteous, gracious and merciful God. These pages are filled, therefore, with both praise and lament. Both laughter and tears, hope and despair, and everything in between. In other words, they're filled with real life. But real life lived quorum Deo, before the face of God. And my hope is that over the next ten weeks, you will find your own experience reflected in the experience of the psalmists, so that you may come to know the God whom the psalmist knew so well and so personally and so intimately. Few people in church history have exemplified the spirit of the psalms as did William Cooper, the great 18th century English hymn writer who's probably best remembered for his hymns, There is a Fountain and God Works in a Mysterious Way. Cooper knew both the heights of exceeding joy in God and the depths of the misery and sorrow of God's felt absence. His life was not a happy one. He was born in 1731 near London. His father was an Anglican minister, but probably not a Christian. And William grew up in a home that was devoid of the gospel. His mother, the only parent who loved him, died when he was six. 
And his father sent him away to boarding school, which was a horrific experience for young William, who suffered abuse at the hands of an older classmate. So here he was, he was bereft of his mother, he had no relationship with his father, he was a virtual orphan from the age of six. He exited this school at the age of 17, being fluent in French and Latin and Greek, yet possessing a shredded psyche. His father arranged for an apprenticeship as a solicitor to train for a career in law, but Cooper wanted to be a poet. His father didn't understand. He sunk into a deep depression in this career that was forced upon him. In fact, throughout his life, Cooper would suffer from debilitating bouts of severe depression and prolonged and paralyzing episodes of despair. In October of 1763, when Cooper was 32 years old, he attempted suicide and failed. Just another thing in his life that he couldn't seem to get right. By that point, Cooper was almost, he'd almost completely lost his grip on reality. He was committed to the St. Albans Insane Asylum near London, and it was there during his stay in the asylum that an evangelical Christian doctor by the name of Nathaniel Cotton befriended him and began to share with him the hope of the gospel, insisting to him day in and day out, William, you are not hopelessly damned. God has not turned his back on you, even though Cooper would insist day after day that he was. Six months into his treatment, while walking around the grounds of the asylum, Cooper found a Bible laying on a park bench quite by accident or maybe by providence. He took the Bible and he began to read it, but he just couldn't lay hope of, or lay hold of of the hope that it offered, lay hold of what it said. He, He later wrote of his experience, quote, having found a Bible on the bench in the garden, I opened upon the 11th chapter of John where Lazarus is raised from the dead and I saw so much benevolence and mercy and goodness and sympathy for miserable men in our Savior's conduct. William knew about miserable men. That I almost shed tears upon the relation, little thinking that it was an exact type of the mercy which Jesus was on the point of extending towards myself. I sighed and said, oh, that I had not rejected so good a redeemer that I had not forfeited all his favors. Thus was my heart softened, though not yet enlightened. Even though he could not believe that he was the recipient of God's saving mercy and grace, he did begin to doubt whether he was in fact irreparably damned after all. Maybe, maybe, All hope was not lost. And then one day, Cooper once again turned to the Bible, and the first verse on which his eye fell was Romans 3.25, which reading in the King James, his own Bible would have said this, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of Of God, and instantly Cooper was converted. 
The words of the gospel in the text of Romans 3.25 became the vehicle through which the light of the Spirit entered into his heart, enlightening his eyes and awakening his soul from death to life. And he, he wrote of this encounter in his journal, Immediately I received the strength to believe it, and the full beams of the Son of Righteousness shone upon me. I saw the sufficiency of the atonement he had made, my pardon sealed in his blood, and all the fullness and completeness completeness of his justification. In a moment I believed and received the gospel. And this hopelessly depressed man says, unless the almighty arm had been under me, I think I should have died with gratitude and joy. My eyes filled with tears and my voice choked with transport. I could only look up to heaven in silent fear, overwhelmed with love and wonder. Now, I wish that was the end of the story. I wish I could say that as a result of his conversion, William Cooper never again struggled with the paralyzing depression and despair, but I can't say that because it's not true. Life is rarely packaged so neatly. The truth of the matter is is that Cooper continued for the rest of his life to wrestle with the demons of despair and the horrors of hopelessness, and he even went through more failed attempts at suicide. In 1799, William Cooper wrote his last poem, his final work entitled The Castaway, before dying in apparent despair the following year at the age of 69. Yet through the the black shroud of depression that so covered Cooper's soul, the son of righteousness that he saw there in the asylum bursting through the pages of Romans 3.25, it it would sometimes shine its brilliant rays through that blackness. In 1767, Cooper moved to Olney near London, which was the parish of a local curate, that is an Anglican pastor by the name of John Newton the famous converted slave trader, although at the time Cooper met him, he was not yet famous. Newton immediately bonded with Cooper. They'd both lost their mothers at the age of six. And for the next 13 years, Newton was Cooper's pastor and only friend. A sincerer and more affectionate friend no man ever had, wrote Cooper. Cooper would make pastoral visits with Newton. Newton would literally go to his house and and make Cooper come out and and attend these visits with him. As they would walk all over the Olney countryside, they would talk about the things of God. And Newton recognized that Cooper was quite the poet. And so he decided, Newton himself being an amateur poet, that they they should work together and collaborate and write a hymnal. Newton contributed some 200 hymns to this hymnal, the most famous being Amazing Grace, and Cooper wrote 68 more. Eventually, Newton would move to a pastorate in London, and Cooper stayed in Olney, and it was during that time when he was again alone that he composed some of his best and most famous poetry. But the remaining 20 years of his life without Newton were a continuous struggle between faith and doubt and hope and despair. Now, I share this biographical sketch of the life of William Cooper for two reasons. First, it demonstrates the truth that true believers are not immune from even the most dreadful episodes of despair. 
regeneration, that is new birth, conversion, does not cure depression any more than it cures cancer. Had Cooper lived in our day, he would undoubtedly have been diagnosed with clinical depression and he would have received medication to stabilize the chemical imbalance that riddled his brain. But such assistance was not available in his day. The new birth does not turn someone with a melancholy personality into an incessant optimist. And as the life of countless saints, including many of the psalmists, reveal depression and despair, whether it be physiological, chemical, or spiritual, continue to assault even the strongest of believers, even to the day of their death. And you need to know this. If you've never wrestled with depression, you need to be aware of this fact so that you won't look down on those who do and just say, stop it. They can't. And if you do struggle with depression, you need to be encouraged by the fact that you're not alone and that the Word of God deals honestly with your struggle. But the second reason I share this story is that William Cooper wrote a hymn, the words of which fit nicely with the message of our text for this morning. In fact, I'm kind of going to be playing off of the theme throughout this message. The hymn is called, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. And in it, Cooper wrote, God moves in a mysterious way His wonders to perform. He plants His footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, note that phrase, behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. This morning, we're going to look at Psalms 42 and 43, in which the author, who's identified as one of the sons of Korah, that is the Levites who served as temple musicians. The psalmist speaks with familiarity and brutal honesty about those dreadful clouds and that frowning providence which Cooper knew so well. So I want you to pause just for a second and think about this. These psalms were written by the official temple musicians for use in temple worship by the people of God. Does that tell you something about the type of songs that we ought to sing in church? A church that sings only upbeat songs with upbeat lyrics at an upbeat tempo runs the risk of alienating those in the congregation whose lives are anything but upbeat. Those who come to church, I don't know, like deer panting for the streams of water because they're dying of thirst. Corporate worship is for the William Coopers of the world too. It's for the William Coopers of the church. What are they supposed to sing when they come? At the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight and now I'm happy all the day. They can't sing that. This guy couldn't sing that. 
We need songs written in the minor key because they reflect our present experience, which is so often lived in the minor key. So Derek Kidner calls Psalm 42 one of the most sadly beautiful in all the Psalter because it describes the psalmist wrestling with God, wrestling against despair, fighting for hope when he doesn't see it. These psalms belong together, as is evidenced not only by the repeated refrain that's found in 42.5, 42.11, and 43.5, that refrain that goes, why are you cast down, O my soul, hope in God, from which I've taken the title of this morning's sermon, but also because Psalm 43, if you'll notice, lacks a superscription, like all of the other psalms which surround it have. In other words, I think that they were originally written as one psalm. Why they were, they were separated when the psalms were compiled is anyone's guess, but I don't think it was the right move. Together, these psalms have a unified and distinctive structure. Just look down at your text with me. There are four laments. 42, 1 to 4. 42, 6 and 7. 42, 9 and 10. And 43, 1 and 2. Four laments that are then answered by four expressions of hope. 42.5, 42.8, 42.11, and 43.3-5. Or 42.12-13, sorry. What we're going to do this morning is look at the laments one at a time and then put them together in order to see the reasons for the soul's despair. And then we'll focus upon the four expressions of hope in order to see the remedy for the soul's despair. So we're going to walk with the psalmist through his despair, which I trust is going to feel very familiar to some of you. And then we're going to follow him out of despair and back into hope. And hopefully you'll be able to walk with him those footsteps as well. Now, we'll begin by looking at the reasons for the soul's despair, all right? What is that frowning providence of God, to borrow Cooper's phrase, which has left the psalmist in such desperate straits? Well, let's look at these four laments and see if we can picture, or piece together, rather, a, a, a portrait, a picture of what's transpiring in his heart and in his Life. I'm going to walk through each of these four laments. Just keep your Bibles open, keep your eyes on the text. I'll provide a little bit of explanation, and then we're going to summarize what we found. Why is the psalmist in despair? Why is his soul cast down? So let's look at verses 1 to 4 in the first lament. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. I want you to notice three elements of this lament that are then going to be repeated in the other laments. Three elements which are important in developing a picture of the kind of turmoil that the psalmist is enduring. 
First, I want you to note that the psalmist is feeling a devastating sense of God's absence. He actually paints a very vivid picture of his spiritual state. He's like a deer in the midst of a prolonged drought who goes down to the creek beds where where once there were flowing streams of, of cool, refreshing water, but now it's only dry, cracked earth. Where once there were lush meadows watered by heavenly rains, now there's only parched earth and dry brown grass that crackles under his feet. Okay, that's the present experience of the psalmist's soul. Steve Lawson says, For the psalmist, it was a time of emotional drought and spiritual dryness. And if you've ever experienced that emotional drought and spiritual dryness, you know exactly what he means. Like a deer that pants for water it cannot find, so there are times when our souls thirst for God and they can find no satisfaction. We feel no joy in worship. The reading of the Word or the hearing of the Word as it's preached tastes more like stale crust than warm bread. When we pray, we feel like there must be some invisible ceiling over our head that prevents our words from ascending to the throne of God. We feel spiritually deadened, emotionally dry, physically heavy. We feel abandoned and alone, starving for lack of food and parched for lack of water. Can you relate? If you can, let me pause here and give you a word of encouragement. Three, actually. First, if you feel this way, take comfort in the fact that you're not alone. So did the Spirit-inspired psalmist. Second, do not automatically assume that your spiritual dryness is the result of some specific personal sin as if God has hidden His face from you because of something you've done. That may be the case, but if it is, you will know, for God will make that clear to you in due time. His purpose and discipline is to bring you to repentance, and you cannot repent of sin of which you're unaware. He will make that clear. If you'll notice, there's no mention of sin anywhere in Psalm 42 and 43. Sin is evidently not the cause of the psalmist's perceived isolation from God. At least not his own personal sin. More on that in a moment. Third, you should take comfort in the fact that the very dissatisfaction that you feel is in itself profound evidence of spiritual life within you. The furious longing for God which the psalmist expresses The intense yearning for God's presence, his soul's desperate thirst for the living God is something that only those who are born again experience. Those who are dead in trespasses and sins do not long for God's presence. They hide from it. So even in the midst of God's absence, there's reason to hope. We just need to help you find it. The second element of this lament of which I I want you to take note is that the psalmist's sense of God's absence is compounded by the taunts of his unbelieving enemies. They taunt him by saying, where is your God? They say that over and over again. 
Gerald Wilson, the eminent Old Testament commentator, believes that this psalm was written during the Babylonian exile. When the leaders of Israel, including the Levitical musicians, were carried out of Israel into exile in Babylon. These enemies that are taunting him then would be the psalmist's foreign captors who have just conquered Israel, destroying and defiling all that was holy and pure in Jerusalem. These enemies are aware that the psalmist's hope was in the deliverance of God, and that deliverance had not come. As far as they were concerned, Jehovah, the God of Israel, was either unwilling or unable to come to the aid of his people. And they let the psalmist know about it. And when our souls are parched and God seems a million miles away from us, we're not impervious to those kind of taunts. We begin to wonder, maybe maybe God was unwilling to help. Maybe God has rejected me. Or worse, maybe he was unable to help. Maybe he isn't who I thought he was. Maybe he isn't at all. Such thoughts will arise when the enemies, or the enemy, begins to taunt us in the midst of our devastation. The third element of this lament is a remembrance of past joys. You see it there in verse 4. So against the, the dark backdrop of his present experience... The psalmist then pours out his soul and the the past joys come into striking relief against against his present agony and they serve only to increase his misery because it seems to add validity to the enemy's accusations and their assertions, God has abandoned you. I mean, yeah, you used to experience joy in his presence, but you're not anymore because he's done with you. So the psalmist thinks back to the great pilgrimage festivals, Passover, the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost, the Feast of Tabernacles, when the faithful from all over Israel would process into Jerusalem and they would go into the temple and present their offerings and their sacrifices before God. It was a time of great rejoicing for the faithful. In those times, there was a palpable sense of God's presence Now there's only the deafening silence of God's absence and the remembrance of those times is not bringing him joy. It's adding to his sorrow because they're no longer. The second lament then runs from verses 6 and 7 of Psalm 42. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep. At the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Now, for whatever reason, and I think the most plausible explanation is exile, this son of Korah, this temple musician, who normally would have dwelt in Jerusalem and ministered in the house of God, is now in the land of Jordan, the land of Hermon from Mount Mizar. In other words, he's describing a region that's far to the north and the east of Jerusalem. Mount Hermon is a range, of, of, or it's part of a range of mountains that is the source of the Jordan River. We don't really know where Mount Mizar is, but it's probably a part of that same range that forms the modern-day border between Lebanon and Syria. 
In other words, the psalmist is in exile, headed towards Babylon. They're crossing the Hermon Range. And as they cross the Hermon Range, likely in chains, he looks dejectedly over at the waterfalls, which are the source of the Jordan River, and he sees the water tumbling over the rocks, and he hears their unremitting roar, and he thinks, you know what? That's a pretty apt metaphor for my present situation. Disaster upon disaster falls upon his head. Then he changes the metaphor slightly from that of a waterfall to that of the sea, particularly the the rocky coast on the northern shores of Israel where the breakers and the waves pound relentlessly upon the rocks. The picture here is of wave upon wave of God's frowning providence beating upon you as if one wave of the deep is calling to the next and is calling to the next and deep is just calling to deep and they're pummeling him with these crises one after the the other relentlessly attempting to drag him under. Have you ever felt like that? You barely recover from one trial before the next one's upon you, and the next one's upon you, and the next one's upon you. You barely get one bill paid before the next one comes due. You barely get over one illness before another sickness strikes you. Or maybe you don't recover at all. Sometimes you aren't even able to get back up on your feet before the next wave crashes down upon you. And notice, look at verse 7. These these are God's waterfalls that are roaring. These are God's breakers that are pounding. These are God's waves that are rolling over him. These difficult trials are sent from God. This is what Cooper means by God's frowning providence. These things that are happening to the psalmist are not happening outside of the control of God's sovereign government. They're happening by his sovereign design. Yet, Cooper assures us that behind God's frowning providence, he hides a smiling face for his faithful ones. And so the psalmist immediately proceeds to verse 8 following up his lament with an expression of God's steadfast love. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. He's not completely hopeless. He knows that God's frowning providence are hiding a smiling face. Fourth lament. Chapter 43, verse 3. Oh, I skipped one. Let's go to the third lament, verses 9 and 10 of verse 42, or Psalm 42. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Okay, you can see in these verses the conflicting emotions of a tortured believer. He knows God as his rock, that is his, his refuge from the battering waves, the solid ground against the onslaught. Okay, that's a statement of faith. God is my rock. But it's immediately followed up by an utterance of fear. But my rock has forgotten me. 
This shows that even though he knows that behind God's frowning providence he hides a smiling face, he's not immune from the taunts that he relentlessly hears from his adversaries or perhaps from the adversary whispering in the depths of his own mind who say all the day long, where is your God? And he says, such words are like a deadly wound in my bones. The fourth lament then is found in verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 43. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Verse 1 repeats much the same theme that was found in the previous laments, but I do want to draw your attention to a subtle yet important change that takes place in verse 2. I want you to compare verse 2 of Psalm 43 with verse 9 of Psalm 42. In the first, Psalm 42, 9, the psalmist calls God his rock, just like in the second, Psalm 43, 2, he calls God his refuge. But in the first, he inquires of God, why have you forgotten me? Now, in the second, he says, why have you rejected me? That change is important. The anguish that the psalmist is feeling has ratcheted up a notch. The vice has, has tightened. In other words, this psalmist, by the time of verse 2 in Psalm 43, is feeling like Cooper felt at the end of his life. That is, like a castaway. This is reminiscent of the language that concludes the book of Lamentations, which was likely written during the same experience of exile. Lamentations 5, 20-22. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore to us or restore us to yourself, O God, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless... You have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. And that's what the psalmist thinks. He cries and he cries and he cries and at the end of his cries he comes and he says, unless of course you're done with me. Unless you've rejected me. It's a dark and a dreary picture. An Israelite in exile having experienced disaster at the hands of his enemies, heading for God only knows what torments lie ahead. So let me sum up what we've seen. What are the reasons for the soul's despair? There are three. First is the absence of God. Psalm 73, 28 says, But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. But what happens when God is not near? What happens when he is silent? That absence can even be compounded as it was in the psalmist experience by the remembrance of past joys and past nearness. So God is absent. Secondly, the accusation of his enemies. Where is your God? Your God has forgotten you. Your God has rejected you. We're not immune to those kind of taunts. We're not immune to those kind of accusations whispered in our ear by the enemy. They may cause you to wonder, what if he has? What if I am forgotten? What if I am rejected? What if I am cast away? And then third, the assault of a frowning providence. The torrent of problems crash upon your head like a waterfall. Wave after wave of crisis rolls over you. You regain your footing only to be knocked off your feet again. Will it ever end? 
Where is God? Those are the reasons for the soul's despair. What we need, therefore, is a remedy, and that remedy is found in verses 3 to 5 of Psalm 43. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. This is where we're going to conclude our time this morning. I find in these verses four, I'm going to call them steps, four crucial steps to combating spiritual despair. What do you do? When you find yourself in a situation like the psalmist, first, you must cry out for deliverance. I want you to notice that verse 43 is a prayer. It's a desperate plea. The psalmist is drowning in darkness and doubt, and so he he cries out to the Lord to deliver him by his light and his truth. And I would remind you that this was the purpose of God's frowning providence to begin with. All along, God has designs in these crises, and that design is to strip away your self-reliance in order that you may learn to lean upon Christ. Listen to the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 1.8, a guy who knew something about crises. He says, For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but upon God who raises the dead. God took us by his frowning providence to the very point of execution in order that we would learn to rely not upon our own devices and our own ingenuity and our own strength, but to rely upon him who raises the dead. In other words, even if the acts falls, yet will I rise. So let God's providential assaults have their intended effect that even if the worst thing you fear comes to pass, yet you know and you hope and you believe he will raise me up. Second, you must go to the word. He says, lead me by your light and your truth and not by my feelings. In Psalm 42 to 43, we we see faith and feeling wrestling against one another for supremacy within the psalmist's soul in order order that faith may win out The soul needs something to grab hold of. Hope, in order to exist, needs to have some some soil in in which to send down its roots. It needs some rock in which to, to, to ground its foundation. It needs an unshakable promise, and those promises are found only in the Word. We need some solid ground when wave after wave is is rolling over us. I remember. When I first went to the Pacific Ocean, I was about eight at the time, and I soon found that the waves on the West Coast are far bigger than the waves in the Gulf of Mexico, to which I was accustomed. And so when I ran out into the water, it it wasn't long. First off, I recognized, boy, it's really cold. 
Uh, but it didn't take me long to realize that I, I was not strong enough to stand in the, midst of, in the midst of these waves. It wasn't long before I got knocked down by a crashing wave, and before I could regain my footing, another one broke upon me. And, and I can still remember the, the sensation of, of tumbling under the water and not knowing which way is up and which way is down. But then I felt the strong hand of my father reach in and pull me up out of the water and put me back on my feet upon the sand. That's the experience that the psalmist is praying for. And that's what we need when deep calls to deep. We need our father to reach out his strong hand of light and truth. The light and truth that is found in his word. And we need for them to lead us. See, too many of us are tossed to and fro, just led by the the swirling tumult of our feelings. Rather, we need to stand firm on the Word and, and be led by God's light and truth back to God's holy hill, that is, back to His dwelling place, back into His presence. Our feelings are going to have the opposite effect. They all too often will lead us to declare that God has abandoned us, He's forgotten us, He's rejected us. So we need to be led by the light and truth of God's word rather than the despair of our feelings. Third, you must return to the altar. It's at the altar that we meet with God and experience him as our exceeding joy, as we see in verse 4. Why the altar? Why does he think about the altar at this point? Well, it's because that's where sacrifice takes place. That's where blood is spilled for atonement. That's where sins are forgiven. That's where mercy is found. That's where the relationship with God is eternally established. That's where the covenant was sealed. Now the altar of the new covenant, the altar to which the new covenant church goes is not found in a specific location. It's not inside a temple located anywhere on earth. The altar of the new covenant is the cross of Christ. And it was at the cross that Jesus Christ, the sacrificial lamb of God, shed his blood to provide atonement for our iniquity, to secure our justification before God. Therefore, it's at the cross that we meet with God, that we're accepted in his sight in spite of what we feel, and where we experience him once again as our exceeding joy. There is a progression found in verses 3 and 4. Lift up your heart in desperate prayer. Let that prayer lead you back to the word where the light and truth of God's promises are found. Let God's promises point you to the altar of the new covenant, which is the cross of Christ, where your acceptance before God was purchased. And let the knowledge of that purchase, the knowledge of that justification, assure you of God's kindness and his mercy towards you, leading you to worship in God and finding in him your exceeding joy. It's a progression. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control not my feelings, not what I can see. This blessed assurance, let it control me. What blessed assurance? That Christ has regarded my helpless estate and he shed his own blood for my soul. That's going to control me. That's going to lead me. 
That's how I'm going to find my way out of despair and back to God my exceeding joy, no matter what happens. Fourth, you must speak to your soul. You need to preach the gospel to yourself. There's a recurring refrain in this psalm where the psalmist takes his soul in his hands and he, and he speaks to it. Why are you cast down, O my soul? You can kind of get the idea he's shaking it a little bit, right? Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. In other words, he's telling his soul, what you see and what you feel is illusion, not reality. Abandonment by God, absence of God is illusion. Inseparable love of God in Christ for his saints is reality. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's reality. Being forgotten or forsaken by God is illusion. Steadfast love and mercy of God is reality. For he has said, Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The triumph of the world over the saints, over the church, over you is illusion. The triumph of Christ over the world on behalf of his people is reality. Jesus says in John 16, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. You need to learn how to speak to your soul. You need to learn how to take your soul in hand and scold it. There's a great quote on this point from the doctor, uh, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He wrote a book called Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Cure. And he says this, Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you listen to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Now this man's treatment was this, speaking of this psalm. Instead of allowing his self to talk to him, this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why art thou cast down, O my soul, he asks. His soul has been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up to it and he says, Self, listen for a moment and I will speak to you. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, Why art thou cast down? What business have you to be disquieted? You must turn on yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, hope thou in God instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way. So this morning, I invite you to do that. I want you to take your soul in hand, just like the psalmist did, and I want you to speak to it. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. How can you be so sure that you will again praise him, who is your salvation and your God? Well, because you've been to the altar. And you've been to the altar because you've been to the word. And you've been to the word because you've cried out to God in desperate prayer. God's covenant will not fail. It was sealed by the blood of his son. So no matter the roaring waterfall of calamity or the restless waves of crisis, Take your soul in hand and say to it, hope 
in God, for you shall again praise him, your salvation and your God. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. 